And do take a copy of God's Word, page 226 in the Bible that's right in front of you, or 1 Samuel 2, verse 12, if you have your own Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, picking up after Hannah's song or Hannah's prayer, and um, you'll remember that Hannah was praying for the Lord to uh, give her a son. She was barren. The Lord blessed her, gave her Samuel, and part of her prayer also included a vow that if she received a son, she'd give him back to the Lord, and uh, that is now what has taken place. That happened at the end of chapter 1. He worshipped, Samuel worshipped the Lord there. That is at Shiloh. And we're reminded again, verse 11, the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. So now Samuel's there. He's with Eli and Eli's two sons who are kind of, um, they're priests as well, sort of priests in training. They're called servants of the priests um, in verse 13. But the action now takes place at Shiloh, at the worship center, and focusing on the work of these four individuals, Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, and Samuel. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's word. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. That's what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home, and indeed the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed 
reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in distress, you will look with envious eyes on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and shall come out to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it and bless the preaching of it as well. The uh, first time I got pulled over for speeding, I think I had my license for a few weeks, back in my hometown, I was pulled over by none other than the chief of police. Um, And I was on my way to work, running late, and that is a habit I've since kicked, you are all aware. I never arrive late to any of our meetings, right? Um, Well, as you can imagine, it was a very nerve-wracking experience, 16-year-old getting pulled over by the the chief of police. And as Chief Kettner asked for my registration, I was fumbling through the glove box and having trouble finding it and getting more and more flustered. As each moment went by, I felt like I was already making him wait for an eternity. And and I couldn't find it. And then this idea came to me. I I thought I'd try another approach, a different tack. I, being a small town as, as it is in Hollidaysburg, I knew that Chief Kettner uh, went to high school with my dad, and they were friends in high school. And I thought, well, maybe if I told him that Drew Cruz is my dad, then he could go back and type in whatever information he needed in the squad car, and he could get what he needed, and he could send me on my way with a ticket or a warning. I didn't care. I just wanted to get out of there, right? And so I thought, this will be, this will be the, the quickest way to do that. So... I learned a little lesson that day. When you're in trouble with the authorities and you begin a sentence with, do you know who my dad is? It doesn't bode well for you, right? Um, I'm sure this is exactly what he heard probably. Don't you know who my father is? Um, And Chief Kettner immediately replied, I do know who your dad is. And what do you think he would think if he were here right now? So that put me in my place. 
Um, I learned that day how to, uh, uh, or I learned that day never to lose your registration. I kept it now. I keep it now where it can easily be found. Um, I don't blame the chief for thinking I was trying to score my way out of something, although I was not. Um, and it's not like my dad or I had any clout with the Hollisburg Police Department. But, but people who do have some status or whose family has some status are prone to abuse that status. And we see that in our text with Hophni and Phineas, don't we? Uh, we can imagine them both beginning many a sentence with, don't you know who my father is? Don't you know who my dad is? As sons of the high priest in Shiloh and as priests themselves, uh, their position had gone to their head. They thought they could do whatever they wanted. They thought they could get away with anything. And so deep was their depravity that even a stern rebuke from Chief Kettner probably would not have set them straight. It would not have been enough to turn them around. This is a very sobering, serious portion of Scripture that we're looking at because it deals very honestly with the judgment that comes upon unrepentant sinners. It's a serious word. There could be an unrepentant sinner here today. Uh, but it also teaches us something of the hope and help that there is for sinners who turn to God, a hope and a help to escape that judgment. We need to hear both of those things today. We need to hear about the judgment. We need to hear about the help. Consider first the problem of this text, what it presents to us. The problem is corrupt worship. What was occurring under the watch as, uh, of the priesthood at that time, Eli, the head priest, uh, Hophni and Phinehas are the, are the issue, but as we're going to see, Eli's going to be reprimanded for his failings as a father and letting this happen in the first place. But, but what was occurring under their watch was true spiritual abuse. Um, they abused the people of God and they abused the worship of God. Uh, they are, they're getting fat off of the offerings of uh, the people, uh, we're told later in the text, um, when the prophet comes to rebuke Eli, that they are fattening themselves, this is verse 29, on the choicest parts of every offering of my people. Um, what, what's happening? Well, well, the Israelites were to bring an animal to offer to the Lord uh, for a sacrifice, but in God's design... A portion of that was to go to the priest to, to give them food and to sustain them because they didn't have other jobs. Uh, they, didn't have, they didn't own land, property. They, they weren't farmers. And so they did live off of, truly, the sacrifice of the people. But they were only to get a portion. And what was supposed to happen is that they would come and they would roast or boil the, the offering. And then they would give to the priest a portion of that, the, um, the cooked meat. But notice verse 15 and 16 that Eli's sons are, are seizing the raw meat before it could even be sacrificed. And uh, that's a problem because what was supposed to happen is that the fat was supposed to be burned up and given to the Lord first. And now they're taking the raw meat along with the fat. And so they're taking even what belonged to God and they're taking it for themselves. I mean, and the idea here is that even, and even when they're not doing that, by the way, even when they're waiting uh, for the people to roast it, the whole idea of they got this, this big fork and they're just kind of shoving it into the cauldron in the pot to get the cooked meat, the idea seems to be they're doing that until they get as much as they want, not what they were 
um, allotted to get. So, you know, the equivalent would be something like the deacons taking the offering and they stand in the back and then they put their hands in and they pocket all the cash before they walk down uh, the aisle uh, for the prayer. That's sort of what the, the priests are doing. And their sin, verse 17 says, is very great because it's against both the people and against Yahweh. They're preventing the people from being able to bring a right sacrifice to the Lord. The people can't burn the fat to God because the priests are threatening to hurt them and take it by force if they don't give it to them. They are treating God's worship, as the text tells us, with contempt. And why is that? Look at verse 12, the beginning of our section. It tells us, it says that Hophni and Phinehas did not know God. They did not know God. Well, that can't be true. Certainly, they knew a lot about God. They were priests, after all. They would have been trained in the Torah, they, they probably knew the Torah better than most. They knew the stories of the faith just as well as the intricate um, case laws of Exodus and Deuteronomy. So what does it mean that they don't know God? This is what it means. It means that they didn't care about God. They didn't care about him. It doesn't mean that they didn't know who he was or even that they denied that he was. If God appeared and walked up to them... They wouldn't be surprised and say, oh, he's real after all. They believe that he's real. It's more like this, that if God appeared and walked up to them, they wouldn't care. Or if if they were living in our day and age and God walked up to them, it means that they wouldn't have lifted their nose out of their smartphone. They wouldn't have given him the time of day. They just don't care about him. And, and, And these are the priests you know, sometimes the greatest threat to the church are people within the church and people at the top of the church, leaders in the church. But it's the most sobering thing in the world if you really take to heart, the consider, or if you consider the meaning of this phrase, they did not know God. It does not mean that they were ignorant. And it does not mean that they were atheists. Atheists are not the only people that go to hell. Hell will be filled with people who believed in God, but just didn't care about him. And that's a scary thought. That could be you today. You're here because you believe in him. It's not that you deny his existence, but you really don't care what's going on here. You have no interest in it. You could take or leave God. There will be more than just atheists who are in hell. There will be pastors, elders, deacons. People who attend regularly, morning, evening worship, come to the prayer meeting and, and, and go to every other event the church puts on. You need to recognize that your baptism, your profession of faith, your membership, your attendance, your Bible knowledge, none of that can make you right with God. Jesus makes you right with God. And when you have Jesus, you'll care about God. That's the question. Do you care about him today? Does he matter to you? Does he factor into your life at all? Or do you defy him like Hophni and Phinehas? They defy God. And what does God say about them? How does he evaluate them? Verse 12, the sons of Eli were worthless men. And so God pronounces certain judgment. The problem in this text is the corrupt worship. Secondly, see this pronouncement of certain judgment. 
a pronouncement of certain judgment. It comes later on in the chapter, verses 27 through the end. But before we get there, notice that Eli himself tries to warn his children about where their actions will lead. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, he says, Why do you do such things? I hear your evil dealings with the people. And truly, it was evil. It says that they are they're fornicating with the, the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Uh, I, I think this is not a um, judgment on the worship of God because some people think, oh, there are cult prostitutes, which is a, a big part of Baal worship, Canaanite worship. I don't think that's what's happening. I think there are women who are trying to come and, and, and worship God rightly, and then these men prey on them, and they take them, and they rape them. So it is evil. Why do you do such things? I hear the evil dealings with, with these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Now look at verse 25. It says something interesting. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Well, what does that mean? What's he talking about? I think the idea seems to be that if there's a dispute between two people, right? If someone sins against a man, if there's a dispute between two people, at least, that, at least those people can appeal to God as a just judge. They can appeal to God or they can appeal to his word. God can mediate, as it were, as a disinterested third party and render true judgment on that situation. But... Imagine if it's not two people, but God is the prosecutor and you or I are the defendant. Then what hope do we have? Right? What third party could possibly come in and sway God's, God's uh, opinion on a matter like that? What third party could try to appease the wrath of God? And Eli saying to his sons, you have sinned majorly against God. God is upset with you. And, and what hope do you have? Turn from your sin. But his warning is too little and too late. This, this passage um, records for us Eli's failure not only as a priest but as a parent, and the two are intertwined for sure. But look at verse 25, how it ends. It says, They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Well, that's, that's hard to hear. We struggle, I think, with language like that when we come across it in the Bible. What does that mean? It was the Lord's will to put somebody to death similar to... You know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and, and, and it's kind of mysterious on the one hand. It sounds unfair on the other hand. I think Dale Ralph Davis has the best word on this. He's an Old Testament commentator from RTS, a retired professor there. And he talks about how some people will respond in defiance and criticism of God, uh, of his cruelty. Uh, others will get caught up in the theological mystery of it all. You know, at what precise point is it that, that it's too late to repent of your sin and, and kind of um, get all very esoteric about it? But this is what he says. He says, both the critic of God and the curious are wrong. Our place is not to question or to comprehend, but to tremble. To tremble before a God who can justly make sinners deaf to the very call of repentance. And I do think that's the right response as we read this passage. We're to tremble at the thought of where unrepentant sin leads. It leads to judgment. It leads to damnation. It leads to destruction. And there's no getting around it. 
There's no hiding from it. So Eli's warning of the serious consequences of his son's sin is confirmed at the end of the chapter. As you look now at verse 27, turn there, please. Here we see the certain judgment pronounced from an unnamed man of God. He comes to speak to Eli about the corruption of worship under his watch. We don't know who this prophet is, right? There came a man of God, very um, uh, vague, anonymous. We don't know. Who it is that is speaking, all that we know and all that matters is how he speaks. How does he open up his, his speech to Eli? Thus says the Lord. It is not the messenger that matters as much as the message. It's not the ambassador, but the king whom he represents. So we pay attention to the message and we see that this prophet reminds Eli of the immense privilege that was given to his family, his line, the Levites, to serve as the worship leaders for God's people. That's what all those rhetorical questions are at the beginning. Didn't I reveal myself to the house of your father, the Levi, when they were in Egypt? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? Yes, you did. Yes, yes is the answer. And uh, he draws that out. The prophet does, or God speaking through the prophet, to draw out the uh, egregious way that, that Eli and his family have now abused that and fallen away from that. And he says, because of it, the Lord's going to remove that privilege from them. Uh, verse 30. Far be it from me, for those who honor me I'll honor, but those who despise me I shall esteem very lightly. I think that it's kind of, uh, we hear an echo of that later in, in Revelation. You know, Jesus is warning to the churches that if they don't repent and return, he's going to remove their lampstand, right? He's going to remove the light from them. The privilege that they have will be taken away. That's what God says is going to happen here. The light of God's countenance can be removed from those who at one time were called God's people, even from those who are at one time leading God's people, even them. Look at verses 31 and 34. I'm going to read them again because they're very important. Behold, the days are coming... When I will cut off your strength, talking to Eli, and the strength of your entire house, so that there won't even be an old man left. That's what he's saying. Verse 32. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. And the only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men Verse 34, in this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Well, those are scary words, but I think the scariest words there are these. The days are coming. Right? You saw that at the beginning of verse 31? Behold, the days are coming. There's no ifs, buts, or maybes about it. This is the certainty of... Of judgment. It's going to happen. It's coming. This is where sin leads. There's no escaping. We need to hear that today. Even for people who are in positions of leadership in the church. Even for people who are faithful in the church. Who profess to be Christians. Even for people who do a better job than Hophni and Phineas At looking like they are believers on the outside. Hophni and Phineas certainly weren't doing that. But we can do a pretty good job of that, right? You know, we, we, we display outward acts of false piety, and we think then we're in the clear. Well, don't fool yourselves. 
You know, I was thinking one of my favorite books as a child, probably an adult too, Where's Waldo? Am I right? It's just, it doesn't get better than Where's Waldo. Um, you, you know, uh, it, the, the uh, genius of it is that Waldo is not hiding, is he? You, you open up the big board book and um, it's got all these images. And when you finally find Waldo, it's not like he's behind a tree kind of peeking out or like crawling under a bench or anything like that. It's just that he happens to be perfectly camouflaged with everything else that's around him. And it stumps us. It's really hard. So we have to go to the back of the book and find the, the key, right, to actually discover where Waldo is. But he's not hiding. He's just doing his thing. He's just there. But we can't see him. And I think there are people who profess to be Christians who think that being part of the church is a way they can hide in plain sight from God. You know, it's as though they recognize a life of debauchery will certainly get them caught, but perhaps a life of religiosity will get them overlooked by the divine. The divine. You know, maybe God will be just as stumped as we are when we try to find Waldo. And that could be you today. You could be thinking that because you are sitting here this morning, even though you have no interest in Christ, you do not care about God. But because you're here, judgment's going to pass over you. God's going to look over all those sins, maybe even wink at you, right? Because you're in the right group. You're doing the right thing. If that's you today, I need to say as clearly as I can this, and you need to listen to this. It is true. You cannot hide from God. But listen to this. You cannot hide from God in church. Church cannot be your hiding place from Almighty God. Galatians tells us this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will reap. God can't be mocked, so don't you be deceived. You know, you can deceive me. You can fool me into thinking that you have your life together and you're a right and proper Christian. You can fool all kinds of people. You can fool your friends. You can fool your family. You can fool your spouse. You might even fool yourself, but you cannot fool God. Don't be deceived. God can't be fooled. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. And so the question is, what are you sowing today? It matters because of that equally pressing question, what will you reap tomorrow? What are you sowing? What will you reap? Is it fleshly fruit? That's what Galatians goes on to distinguish between the the flesh and, and the spirit. Are you sowing Uh, good works that are done in yourselves, that are done by yourself, that are done for yourself. All of that is rotten and it is worthless, just like God said about Hophni and Phinehas, they are worthless. Is that all you'll have to show for yourself at the end of the day? Or are you sowing spiritual fruit? I'm talking about real real fruit that is born out of a heart that, that not only knows God, but cares about him, cares about him. Do you follow after God in your inner being? What are you sowing today? Friends, we will all have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we've done, whether good or evil. Judgment is certain. What we do in this life matters for the next. What we believe matters. How we think about God matters. This text teaches us of the certainty of judgment and the severity of judgment as well. What is the ultimate judgment for Hophni and Phinehas? Behold, they're going to die the same day. Death. Death's the judgment. And we know that's what we deserve too. 
That's what we deserve. We probably could not hear Paul's declaration enough from Romans that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. If we believed that, if we remembered that, we wouldn't sin as much as we do. But for those who live in their sin, for those who leave themselves to their sin, death is the only result, even if you're a pretty good person who goes to church, even if you're a gifted speaker and and, and pastor and preacher, even if you're an elder in the church, a deacon in the church. Actually, Hebrews seems to suggest that it will be worse off for you if you are one of those people who likes to try to be camouflaged in the church with all the other good people and, and, and you do your good works and you, you flaunt your religiosity and Hebrews says, oh, it's going to be even worse for you. I want, I want to show you that. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. Let's turn there together. Another sobering text here Hebrews 10 and verse 26 read to verse 31 for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people And then this final word, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful word that we read there in Hebrews 10 about those who go on sinning deliberately, thinking that they're all good because they go through the motions. It's a scary word for us. It's, it's, 1 Samuel 2 is a scary word for Hophni and Phinehas. But it's, it's, scarier, it's scary not just for them, but for the whole nation, right? The prophet's message to Eli is bad news, not only for him and his family, but for the entire nation. We are disappointed when pastors fail us, and rightly so. But the stakes are not as high today as they once were, because a pastor... Thank God for this. I do not represent you before Almighty God. But that isn't the way it worked in the Old Covenant. The priests were truly mediators. They're the ones that brought the people before God. Without the priests, they could not get to God. And if you had a sinful priest, that's how God looked upon the whole nation. They're a bunch of sinners. They're unclean. They're unclean. They're impure. Without the priest, they had no way to approach the holy God. This is a word of terror for the whole nation when God says, I'm going to destroy the priesthood. That's essentially what he says to Eli, right? I'm going to kill you and your, your sons, and there's not even going to be anybody left in your family. It's a word of judgment. But did you notice it also comes with a word of hope? We've seen the problem is corrupt worship. We've seen the pronouncement of certain judgment. Finally, the promise of coming hope. Verse 35, God says he embeds within this message of terror, this message of hope, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And so here the promise of a faithful priest is juxtaposed against the judgment of a faithless priesthood. And who could he be? Who is this priest? Well, the whole chapter has been dropping hints. It's Samuel. It's Samuel. Have you noticed 
the construction of this chapter has been switching back and forth between describing uh, Eli's sons and describing Hannah's son. While they're um, worthless men, uh, sandwiched between their tales of, of woe and priests who do not know God, we're told about Samuel who grows up in the presence of the Lord, verse 21, or the one who continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, verse 26. And so here we see the mercies of God who actually never leaves his people hopeless or helpless. When all seems lost, when sin and darkness seem to have won the day, here's a glimmer of hope that shows us that all is not lost. There is more yet to come. The people who, who hear this are, are meant to, to, to have this anticipation of, of this new prophet and priest and what he can do for the nation. But as you and I, new covenant Christians that we are, as we read this, God wants us to have a greater and a grateful anticipation of not what Samuel did, but of what Jesus does. He really is the, the priest who has this sure house who will go in and out before God forever. He's the sure and perfect priest. Samuel was just a placeholder. And do you know how we know that? Do you know why it is we know that? We're given a, a, um, a big clue as to why Samuel isn't, isn't the, 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 the priest everybody's hoping for. It's in chapter 25. If you want to turn there, there's just three words. They're fascinating. And they give us everything we need to know to know that we need to look beyond Samuel. Look at chapter 25 in the first verse, in the first three words. What are we told? Then Samuel died. Then Samuel died. There goes that hope. There goes that help. What does Hebrews teach us about this? Chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. What's the point? Well, actually... Chapter 7 goes on to tell us the very next sentence. It says, here's the takeaway. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Uh, The takeaway of this priest, Jesus Christ, is the uttermost salvation that we have in him. That's what we get to take away. Salvation to the uttermost. Uh, We have in the perfect, ever-living, ever-loving high priest Jesus Christ a salvation that nobody can take from us. That nothing can take from us, even our own sin. We're meant to see how Christ and Christ alone can save us from the worst sins and the deepest fears and even the greatest of enemies. Saves us even from the wrath of God. Here's the one that Eli could not fathom. Right? But if you've sinned against God, who is there to intercede? Right? If God's against you, who can come and, and, and sway Almighty God? How about Almighty God, Jesus Christ? The God man, the mediator, the one we're told in Hebrews 7:25, always lives to make intercession. Eli had no idea. Who is there to intercede? And now we can say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus lives to intercede. Friends, This is what you have in the gospel. You have a priest who never dies, who always lives, 
who's always interceding for you, always praying for you, always taking your burdens as his own, your cares as his own, bringing them before the God, before God, his father, the heavenly father. And you know what? When the father hears him pray, when the father hears his requests, the father always says, yes, you have it, whatever you ask of me, because he's a perfect son. And that makes him a perfect priest. And so today, you must, you must hear me when I say this. Stop hiding in your sin. Stop hiding in church. Hide in Jesus Christ. For he alone gives salvation to the uttermost. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the scriptures and how they teach us of things we need to know for our faith and life. Difficult things like judgment and And what comes of sin that's unrepented of. But it gives us such hope for when we turn from our sin. We turn to Christ. We have one who intercedes for us. Who always lives to intercede for us. And so we thank you that indeed in him uh, we have a salvation to the uttermost. That's your promise. That for those who draw near to you through Christ, you save perfectly. And we have no fear of falling away. Lord, would that truth pry us away from the sin we cling to? Uh, the fears that, that um, dictate our thoughts bring us back to this simple gospel truth. That in Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to you. We have peace with you. And we no longer need to fear. I pray that you would write the truths of your word upon our hearts. That we would live in light of them and follow after you more fully. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.